Escape from Plan A. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Escape from Plan A. This is your host, Q. I've been away for a while, but I'm back. And on this episode, we also have Elaine. Hey. And Gavin. Hello. And today we're going to be discussing a book that we've all wanting we've all wanted to talk about for quite some time. Uh, Jay Sakai's Settlers, which is uh, controversial in some ways, but uh, what we've found through our reading is that it is quite insightful in trying to understand the nature of uh, capitalism and settler colonialism in uh, what we call the United States of America, or uh, Indigenous folks might call Turtle Island, and it's really given us uh, a lot to think about. Yeah, this is probably my favorite book. Uh, I feel like there's something in every chapter uh, that is useful for explaining, you know, some part uh, of American life, uh, American politics, and American psychology. It's incredibly dense. You know, I've read it before many times now, uh, but I'm always finding something new, uh, something that I didn't notice the first time I read it. And so I really, I really enjoy it. I recommend it to everyone. It's guided a lot of my politics. Yeah, that's awesome. Elaine, what did you think of uh, the book so far? This is my first time reading it. So unlike Gavin, I'm getting into a lot of this stuff. Like my, It's like my first time getting into a lot of this history. Um, it's generally difficult for me to read really dense books like this by myself. So I'm really glad I'm reading it with you guys as a group. Yeah, and it's super fascinating. It really helps you make those connections between like you know, like imperialism and settler colonialism and how we kind of have to be fighting all of these things at once in order to be effective, fighting against white su- supremacy. So I think it's it's just such a good read and I'm, I'm really glad I'm reading it, it right now. Yeah, I completely agree, especially kind of in the midst of the political moment that we find ourselves in. I think this was a perfect selection, uh, to be honest, to really dissect the psychology of kind of reactionary elements that we see, uh, especially with what happened with the riot at the Capitol. Um, even in the introduction of the book, uh, Sakai is talking about how, you know, the nature of history, as we understand it, of the United States is a primarily white history in that we need to take it upon ourselves in order to better understand uh, America through a class analysis to do that beyond the lens of, of white history, to do it through third world history, which makes sense given that Jason Kai is a pretty clear like third worldist. And um, I think the introduction does a good job of making clear that the thesis of this text is to try to you know deconstruct some of the, of the mythology that we've heard about America as we know it. Yeah, I'd like to actually ask you guys what you thought of uh, what he says here at the very beginning in the introduction, he talks about how imperialists have sponsored ethnic studies programs, Asian studies, black studies, Puerto Rican studies, uh, Indian studies, and ethnic studies as a way to, you know, oppose enlightenment by giving it what he says, giving it in form, but not in essence. I found kind of fascinating the way that he, I mean, maybe I'm reading into it more, but when he talks about U.S. history being a white history, and now we can kind of add to it with the various stories of oppressed people. It felt 
kind of like he was making a dig at liberal universalism and this idea that like white history is like the is like the history it's just missing kind of a little like bits and pieces and instead i think what he's kind of getting at you know throughout the book one of my favorite pictures is near the end when he has a uh, mural from uh, los angeles and i believe it's a mural of che and he's pointing and saying we are not a minority in that you know third world histories is the majority of history of the world uh and this white history is really only a short period of time and so I found that really interesting, but I was wondering what you guys thought of that. I completely agree uh, with you, Gavin. The kind of notion that the pinnacle of our understanding of history is through these university-sponsored programs is a clear limitation of why representational politics, and as you said, this kind of liberal universalism is like an incorrect analysis of history and is a very severely limited understanding of history because these studies are kind of by design created to be kind of catch and kill understandings of history. Like we want to be included. We want to be uh, having found ourselves at a, uh, with a seat at the table, but not necessarily with a complete picture of uh, how imperialism functions. And imperialism does not exist within the core of the empire. It exists globally. And to be able to understand imperialism in a way to, you know, defeat it and to deconstruct it through an analysis of historical materialism, I think Sakai is pointing to the necessity of us having a much more broad understanding of how history works and how that should inform kind of the practices that we do on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. And I think there's like this, like this liberal trend of wanting to be represented, but it's really not deconstructing that imperialist narrative at all. Like you just want to be, it's about diverse representation amongst like, sort of power, like heads of state and CEOs. And I just just think this book does a good job of like explaining how that is class oriented and not necessarily race oriented. Yeah, that makes a a lot of sense. A lot of the criticism that this book receives is that it's like race essentialist, but it like completely writes off the capacity of the white proletariat to be able to organize with uh, the colonized people of the world to achieve some notion of self-determination or freedom. But I think Sakai makes a pretty good case that the white proletariat, at least in America, through a very strong historical and materialist analysis, as we see through the book, they kind of function as this labor aristocracy. But we can get to that in a little bit. But just to dive in, um, since today's episode is going to be covering chapters one through five, uh, the first chapter is titled The Heart of Whiteness. And I think Sakai does a great job of kind of outlining the foundations of what settler colonialism looked like in uh, the United States, why the kind of conquest of land was central to the formation of settler colonialism here, and then the kind of social structure that enabled Euro-Americans to achieve this status of uh, great wealth uh, without kind of ever being placed within the class confines that would constitute what we understand to be your traditional kind of proletariat that Marx and Engels talk about. Yeah, I mean, this whole book is kind of a takedown of the whole like white working class idea. But here at the very beginning, I think this ties throughout the entire book, but the goal of the Euro-American settler is owning some land back you know in in england these guys couldn't own land they you know they were forced out of you know they weren't in the aristocratic class they weren't you know you know landowning yeomen Uh, but here in america there was tons of land and it was dirt cheap and and that land was it's not only like an economic draw of oh you can make lots of money 
in America that you couldn't make in Europe, which was totally true. Uh, all the wages at every level, you could make more money in America than you could in Europe. But it was also like a psychological security. Uh, land, you know, was a permanent form of, you know, success and security. It showed, you know, you're right with God. And it was associated, you know, Sakai quotes here, an early scholar of that period, you know, it was associated with everything that was good in life. And that's why it was so important for these guys to get here. Uh, and and they were willing to do anything to get that land and security, including kill for it. Uh, and they did. For sure. And the land question, I think, is what Sakai is really just stressing at the beginning, like the heart of whiteness and the sense of uh, this need to dominate was not just something that kind of exists you know, psychologically, because that would be like race essentialism, right? Is to say that like white people only had the capacity to like dominate or whatever. But he makes it clear through his class analysis and what happened during this historical period is that land hunger, uh, as he quote is as I'm quoting here, land hunger was rife amongst the classes, um, and that there was a reason why these settlers came to America versus, for example, the West Indies. And quoting again, he said, "The dream in the settler mind of each man becoming a petty lord of his own land." Thus, the tradition of individualism and egalitarianism in America was rooted in the poisoned concept of equal privileges for a new nation of European conquerors. So this kind of mythology of the formation of the United States was centralized upon this idea that there was rife opportunity to be had from uh, this quote-unquote abundant quantity of land that was here. Ignoring, of course, the fact that there was a native population that already existed here, which is treated as like a secondary question in the kind of usual American mythos. And in the first chapter, I thought it was really interesting how he goes into like, you know, this whole it was basically a huge land grab, but there were already people here, like indigenous societies, like highly developed, even more advanced than like the European settlers. And there was just like a ton of people that is not really accounted for when we learn about this history. It's just <laughs> super, I mean, this is my first time reading about this, you know, so it's it's super messed up. Like it just strikes me as like, holy shit, like there, there are tons of people here. It's like already, you know, like it's just, holy shit. Like, yeah, that was my reaction when I was reading this. Um, he goes, he talks a bit about this, how they were like urban societies here, like cities of people. And, but then the, the, the popular image is that there was nothing or there was like a few sparse, you know, people like living off in the whatever, but it, it was like, yeah, it was like very organized. It was like organized genocide basically. And yeah, I mean, I've never really thought about what was already here, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he, when he lays out the numbers, it's just, it's shocking. He talks about, you know, there were 100 million uh, Indians that were killed uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and just the number of that is completely insane. Uh, I mean, that's World War II numbers uh, of people or more. I mean, that's, it's just like uh, completely unimaginable. He talks about specifically in North America, there were about 10 million uh, before settlers arrived, and by 1900, there were 200 to 300,000. Uh, that's you know 9,800,000 people killed, reduced down to. I mean, it's it's absolutely horrendous. Uh, uh, I'll quote what he talks about here. He says, you know, only here the out of Eitmans and Heinrich Himmlers had names like Benjamin Franklin and Andrew Jackson. It's just absolutely obscene uh, the amount of bloodletting that created this nation. 
Yeah, and it really says something about American propaganda that we don't see the founding fathers in the same light that we would see, you know, Hitler and other individuals who've enacted genocide on a mass scale because we have somehow constructed this uh, bootstraps narrative that these American settlers came to this quote unquote empty land. Uh, which, you know, Sakai quotes, and he says, for America to exist, the settlers had to deliberately make the land empty, right? Like the land definitely wasn't empty. And there was definitely like a, an established civilization of individuals who lived there. But, you know, it's inconvenient to the formation of this nation. And, um, you know, that's that's why things like the land back movement are so popular now, because they call back to this formation of, of, uh, of a nation built on genocide. I think also what was really interesting to me that he talks about is, you know, how, uh, like Elaine mentioned, you know, the sophisticated structure uh, of these societies. When the settlers came here, I mean, they were starving to death. They didn't know how to fucking do anything. Uh, and at the same time, you know, indigenous civilizations had cities of over a million people. I believe I read elsewhere that Tenochtitlan was, at certain points in time, the largest city in the entire world. The uh, uh, agoponics they practiced there uh, was more advanced than some of the stuff we can do now. Uh, and it's absolutely insane that these were destroyed in, in the most brutal uh, and bloody ways. Yeah, he also goes on about breaking down that myth of, like he says, okay, he talks about the white settlers as they were like the oppressors and they had basically their entire economy, their entire society was built on, like, they were dependent on slave labor for like everything, like absolutely everything. Like, you know, he goes on about how all of their industries were dependent on slaves, um, African slaves or Indian slaves. Sakai uses the word Indian for like indigenous. So, you know, the slave trade of, they were like selling slaves to like the West Indies. And this was like an entire global economy of like just, they were using each other's slaves to build up their settler colonial nations. It, it's just like, just the, the breadth of that is just, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> and they, they, they would, sorry, they would use slaves for everything. Like for like um, when a small farmer would want to get a farm started, they would like rent slaves to get it started. And even like artisan craft workshops, they were like, dependent on skilled slaves from Africa. Like, so they, so African slaves didn't just work in the fields. Like they were coming here, like they came here, they were sold here, you know, enslaved (laughs) and they were already skilled. So that's also something that we're not really, well, at least I wasn't taught that, you know, there's just that image of like African slaves working in the fields, but they were involved in every sector. I like how, uh, you know, Sakai pinpoints how, you know, dependent, uh, like you say, uh, all sectors were, were on this and how this actually gave uh, African labor a lot of power. Uh, he mentions how uh, African slaves uh, on Manhattan had one land uh, from the Dutch settlers and they had settled uh, what's now uh, Greenwich Village, Astor Place, Herald Square. Uh, and famously uh, 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 Central Park. And then it was taken again. Uh, They passed laws against land ownership of Africans. And so they stole it twice. They stole it from the indigenous people and then they stole it from African 
uh, African people that they had brought here as slaves and then were people were able to win their freedom again because you know all these industries were so dependent on it if there was a strike of slaves or if there was a slave revolt it could act- absolutely cripple the economy of, of the colonies and that was a kind of a driving force for the politics of the uh, of the colonies uh, he goes into how you know the Haitian revolution happened and it terrified i mean it terrified the entire world but it terrified especially you know this slave state that was a few hundred miles away that where Africans outnumbered uh, whites and they were more skilled. They had, uh, you know, more industrial power. Yeah, I think Sakai does a really good job of outlining this later in chapter three um, when he talks about the crisis within the slave system and the kind of inherent threat that's presented when a settler society becomes dependent on something like slavery. Um, but the second, the last half of the uh, first chapter talks about the Euro-American social structure, which is something that I also found really interesting. And I feel like this is when he starts really laying out his thesis that the very social structure of um, Euro-America is founded upon this notion that like the settlers were, you know, coming to this land that was extremely spacious and there's people here uh, that are uh, functionally irrelevant and they kind of uh, were able to bootstrap themselves up into a fully functioning society. But, you know, he outlines this notion that he quotes Marx and Engels and says specifically that the ultimate privilege of a settler society is the privilege of having no proletariat at all, that the vast majority of white settlers who came here, uh, even if they uh, did not immediately come with capital and were able to start up, you know, like plantations and uh, like factories and be able to own like massive amounts of the means of production, the ones who still function in indentured servitude still saw it as a temporary phase through which one uh, worked one's way to freedom and land ownership. So the notion of an American dream then was not a dream. It was literally reality that if you came here, um, the social structure ensured that essentially you were going to be able to make a living for yourself quite well and quite easily. The idea of class mobility was essentially a guarantee. Uh, whereas, um, you know, the, the majority of the labor, as Elaine noted, was still enacted by, by slaves and that the kind of function of the economy was to ensure that that labor pool was um, always going to make it so that the settlers would be in a good position. And I think that actually takes us to chapter two when we talk about struggles and alliances and some of the conflicts that start resulting between uh, this idea of this labor aristocracy that Sakai talks about and then other uh, groups, especially uh individuals who are captives, Native Americans, individuals, et cetera, uh, within this new settler colony. Yeah, Bacon's Rebellion, uh, which is uh, forms, I believe, the majority of the, uh, the second chapter, uh, is a kind of really fascinating uh, study of, of Sakai's thesis. Uh, you know, his idea, uh, he criticizes that a lot of white labor historians bring up Bacon's Rebellion as kind of like a uh, a pre uh, pre revolution, you know, cry for democratic uh, rights, uh, and this uh, alliance between black and white labor, and so on. Uh, but the Baconites were very clear. Uh, he says uh, he quotes one of them saying, "Our entire design was to get the fur." Uh, they rose in revolt because the local British governor uh, had formed an alliance with 
the Native American tribe that was uh, nearby. And the Baconites wanted to go over there, kill them, and take all their stuff. And the Baconites were very upset that the British governor was stopping them from, uh, you know, being able to exercise what they saw as their settler right to everything that, uh, you know, non-white people own. And I found it, you know, pretty fascinating how closely in a lot of ways this mirrors, uh, you know, kind of what we saw at the Capitol. I was just thinking about how, you know, Bacon's Rebellion was this rebellion of this kind of like middle class. They weren't the big planters uh, who had, uh, you know, this great alliance with the British state. Uh, they were these small landowners and like we described, laborers who aspired to be landowners. Uh, but they could only get land if there was more land to get. And the British were hemming in uh, American expansion. And that was part of what was happening here. The governor had made alliance with the with the native tribes and was saying, you know, we're not going to you know, take all your land. All you have to do is go kill all the other tribes for us. But that relied on us, you know, not invading your land. Uh, and here the Baconites, in a way, uh, you know, needed to invade that land to fulfill that kind of their class purpose. If you need to graduate up into a landowning status, then you're going to need to go take some land uh, if there's none to be sold to you. If everyone's having lots of children because they're Protestant uh, and, you know, they're obsessed with uh, birth rates and that sort of thing, we need to go take some more land. Uh, there's not enough for us here. Uh, and this is, I like, I, uh, sorry to tie it back to what I'm saying with the Capitol is that here we see, you know, uh, Biden uh, and the Democrats are in some ways, you know, the large imperialists, they represent in many ways the, you know, large capitalists and these small landowners, uh, they feel that they're not getting their portion of empire that they're promised. Uh, and so they're going to go down and raise a stink, but really it's this big fight between, the, the various portions of the ruling class. Bacon goes around, him and his friends burn down, what is it, the capital of the Virginia, and yet they all get pardoned. Uh, they form a rebellion, and they go down, they march down to the capital, and as soon as it looks like they're going to lose, half of them change sides. And we're seeing that right now with as soon as the stuff at the capital turned bad, uh, half of these uh, Trump people started saying, oh, actually, those guys are Antifa, they're not part of us. Uh, we're on the other side. Uh, and you see all the Republicans changing sides as well. And no doubt if the rebellion or insurrection or protest, whatever you want to call what happened at the Capitol, uh, had gone the other way, all these Republicans would be going the other way uh, because they're cowards, just like these Baconites. Yeah, definitely. And you see the parallel with the class element as well. The types of individuals who are at the Capitol were flying in on like private jets, uh, primarily small business owners. And, you know, the type of individual who you could classify as a petite bourgeoisie who can take off work on a Wednesday afternoon because they don't have to like clock in at the office or whatever. They can just check out because they own the business that they operate. Um, and it's like very clear then that the uh, what we saw at the Capitol was also not really a rebellion or an insurrection or even a coup. I know a lot of individuals are calling it that because it doesn't fundamentally challenge the class interests of uh, the you know capital B bourgeoisie, they just want their slice of the pie, and we're seeing that uh, at the instance of the capital. But we also saw it obviously with Bacon's Rebellion, where you could see that um, there was no like real fundamental challenging of the interests of the people that they were trying to rebel against, and you see this very clearly when fortunes turn. 
I just I can't get over the line that that uh, Bacon's men confessed that the great design was to get the beaver. Uh, they were just obsessed with uh, this uh, yeah. supposed great horde of beaver fur the indigenous tribe local to them had. It reminded me too much of those guys. There's some video footage from the Capitol protest of the people yelling, we're the business owners. You can't attack <laughs> us. We're the business owners. Right. It's coming from a place of entitlement in both situations, which is why the parallel seems so striking is that they both feel like they were promised something. And once that promise wasn't fulfilled, they enact this kind of uh, a violent outburst, but it really doesn't challenge the powers that be in any meaningful way. Yeah, I agree. Um, I saw a tweet that said, I, I don't remember who tweeted this, but it was like a video of the rioters in a clash with police and the caption was settlers gone wild. <laughs> and I thought that summed it up really well. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, the way he groups these various classes together and the way that they're so fluid, I think mimics again, a lot of what we saw at the Capitol, because a lot of these people like they, I mean, they literally yelled we're the business owners, but a lot of them might not have been like specifically like business owners or petit bourgeois, but they are in the family of uh, petit bourgeois, you know, they aspire to that. Uh, that's kind of their class goal. And like these, you know, these laborers in the early American society, there was a clear ladder uh, for them to, you know, in, you know, increase their class status uh, into this like petit bourgeois status. So they see their interests as the same, even when, you know, they might not be specifically at that exact moment, petit bourgeois, they're looking to move into it. They're, you know, they're one small business loan away from open a car dealership or whatever. Yeah, I think it speaks to the overall desperation that characterizes that class, where they're basically, they're really afraid of being thrown down into the working class, you know, and so there is that desperation, and they just want to be included with the big bourgeoisie, like, they want to be represented within the government, like, that's what it is to me. Yeah, he tells the story at the very beginning, the early settlers, uh, the pilgrims, before they came to America, they had gone to Holland. Uh, but they couldn't hack it there because in Holland they had to be, you know, servants uh, and they had to be proletariat. Uh, but it was, I mean, that's the, I'm American. I feel that in the same way, like the lowest, you know, portion of American life is, you know, the actual laborers. Uh, I think of when I worked in food service for a decade now. And when I first started to get a job uh, in food service, my mom told me, don't become a dishwasher. Right. Because this lowest class of people who are, you know, perform in many ways, a lot of the most needed labor uh, are really looked down upon and disdained uh, in American society and have been Sakai shows for 300 years. Yeah. Sakai also mentions how like for white people, it's like really looked down upon like white settler society. It's like they see themselves as a privileged class of workers. So it's like you're not suited for like certain types of roles, I guess, you know, it's like, it's like a mark of failure. I think that's what, how he describes it. It's like, um, if you're actually like a wage slave or whatever the term is, you know, he, he says it's like a mark of failure within white seller society. So there's that still that cultural thing that was going on. 
Yeah, I mean, some things never change. And I think that actually takes us to chapter three as well, because this is also an example of a historical lesson that hasn't changed as well, which is the threat of um, folks who are enslaved against settler society at large. Sakai says, quote, for the slave system importing concentrated a vast enemy army of oppressed right in the sinews of white society. So white society has built this dependence upon uh, the enslaved and yet, on the other hand, also fear their capacity for insurrection and freedom. Um, and this is also, again, where we talk about this anecdote about Thomas Jefferson, this kind of narrative of a benevolent liberal planter who helped orchestrate an architect, who operated as an architect for the founding of this country and still was able to do that while monopolizing essentially his own personal business interests, um, which really just shows the kind of hypocrisy that exists in liberal democracy and the narratives that settler societies tell themselves, especially here. Something that I thought was really interesting about this chapter three is that some things really don't change, which is that there was this really uh, strong anxiety about demographics, right? And that's something that you see, especially amongst uh, white people now, is that they're worried. I don't know what the date was. It was like 2025 or something that the demographic constitution of America would ensure that white people become the minority or whatever. Um, this, In this case, it's uh, literally because they are importing so many slaves to be able to fund their business ventures that they're worried that the slaves will be able to form some notion of self-determination and start resisting. Um, Sakai notes that during this time period uh, around um, the start of the 1800s, that slaves start escaping more often. Um, they're no longer under these tight, like, uh, bureaucratic controls of where they're supposed to reside in the cities that they live in. Um, rebellions are occurring a lot more frequently. And he also pushes back against this idea that, like, city populations were more benevolent to to Africans as well, um, that even abolitionists supported the idea of shipping back Africans to be able to decrease their number because of this fear of a demographic change. Yeah, it's pretty interesting how um, he talks about how in the North, like settlers opposed slavery, not because they were against it morally, but because they didn't want masses of African slaves or like free, you know, they didn't want African people in their cities. And so they started abolishing slavery starting from 1777, just to keep those numbers down. And yeah, that's, I just thought that was really interesting because you don't learn about it in that way. You learn about it like Northern, Northerners were against slavery, you know, because it was wrong, but it wasn't about that at all. They just were really racist. Like it was like their reason. They didn't want to be, a, they didn't want like a lot of, African people in their cities. Yeah, this chapter really helped me kind of understand the nature of the Civil War and the time period that existed right before that between the North and the South through a stronger class analysis. Yeah, I, I mean, I was taught like all through my uh, like middle school, high school that, you know, it's just straightforward. North is like factories and they are against slavery. South is for slavery and they're the plantations. But I think Sakai does a really good, good job of illustrating like what are the specific economic motivations for why the North opposed slavery. And it was because they wanted to ensure that there was this like kind of pipeline for the white arist uh, labor aristocracy to be able to achieve that class mobility. Whereas the South uh, ironically uh, opposed the capacity for greater Euro-American uh, class mobility because they 
had this kind of stranglehold on on slave power and being able to you know concentrate their class interests. Mm-hmm, yeah, I thought that was super interesting too. Um, I th- Sakai sort of goes into that in like a later chapter, like se- uh, chapter four, where it's like the popular appeal of genocide that section. But yeah, I think the reason the reason that okay, according to Sakai, like the northern settlers, their reasons for opposing slave power, southern slave power, is because they wanted a powerful empire being held down by large numbers of white settlers, and so that was that kind of didn't work out with their vision of like how they wanted to develop their empire. Yeah, it's another thing that's not really brought up when you learn history, uh, at least the school that I went to, like regular U.S. public school. He brings up, I mean, Jefferson, uh, when he's talking about Jefferson, Jefferson's fantasy of, you know, kind of an all-white, like, America. There's another book that's pretty great called uh, uh, White Trash. And she, uh, the author of that, Nancy Eisenberg, goes into a lot uh, Benjamin Franklin's fantasy, too, of their idea of a yeoman democracy. Everything, there will be no kind of like social strife because everyone will be of the same class, this kind of like subtler superclass. Uh, I mean, they did kind of get what they wanted uh, in some way. Margaret Kimberly from a Black Agenda Report uh, writes in her book uh, about the U.S. presidents, how many presidents, even, for example, what people think of as like kind of the great liberator, uh, Abraham Lincoln, his fantasy too was they were going to send all the Africans back to Africa uh, and they were going to just get rid of uh, what they considered to be, you know, a significant stumbling block, uh, stumbling block to their national unity. Yeah, it's it's wild how pervasive that fantasy was, and also how hidden uh, it is now in kind of like our whatever like liberal like post racial uh, world. These guys, I mean, they just literally wanted to get rid of all the black people once uh, they were freed. Yeah, the Northerners, um, they thought what was like, quote unquote, protecting like African communities in the North was the fact that the South still like, it, they thought it was like the, the Southern planters were like protecting the North, like the, the, the African community. Like this is, this is really weird. Sorry. Um, it was a really <laughs> weird argument, which is I have to find it. Um, they thought that what was keeping Africans on the continent and quote unquote protecting them was the interests of the Southern planters. And without that, they thought the Africans would like quote unquote die out like the Indians. Like, I just thought that was really strange. Yeah, they justified it to themselves, like the genocide was inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they leave, I mean, they, exactly what they did, right? I mean, their quote unquote, like the dying out of the Indians was, you know, the most brutal slaughter uh, maybe in history. It's very innuendo laid in, like we were talking about, it's like the popular appeal of genocide. Uh, this was the solution to kind of any American social problem. And I think this is probably a good segue into uh, chapter four when we start talking about uh, settler trade unionism. So we start trying to understand how uh, the white labor aristocracy saw itself in relation to these other uh, kind of uh, body politics, like those of Africans and of uh, Native Americans. And we see this rise of, of white labor and this idea that these individuals really do see themselves as the proletarian and they start actually gravitating towards Marxist ideas all the while they are championing, you know, the gradual genocide of, of all colored people who pose some threat to their statuses as a, you know, guaranteed quality of life. This chapter, uh, 
they go into quite a bit uh, to American like war strategy. They talk uh, about the expansion into Florida. The Seminoles, uh, the tribe that uh, controlled a lot of Florida, were taking in a lot of escaped slaves. uh, And a lot of these African Seminoles uh, were fighting back against American forces that were looking to enslave them, uh, either re-enslave them or enslave, you know, never enslaved indigenous people. And these wars went on for 40 years. Andrew Jackson uh, fought in in some of them and later advised uh, on a lot of uh, the policy that eventually, quote unquote, like won the war. His solution was a you know final solution. He said, you know, people don't need to feel guilty when they, quote unquote, uh, tread on the graves of extinct nations uh, because wiping out all Indian life was just as natural as the passing of generations. And Sakai writes, uh, rightly kind of derides how important this dude is for Euro-American labor history. This dude is supposedly kind of the hero of, you know, the, the small man. He's the guy who finally brought kind of working class uh, voices into Washington. And what do the working class voices say? They said, kill the Indian. Uh, and that's kind of like the basis for American labor policy uh, throughout the world. Under Andrew Jackson's presidency, like the U.S. government stopped recognizing any form of indigenous sovereignty. Settlers were basically encouraged to like seize indigenous lands by gunpoint. And like all of those quotes, all of the, the quotes that are mentioned, like they're just super chilling. Like, like it's just messed up. Yeah, I, I seriously get goosebumps like reading those quotes from Andrew Jackson where he straight up just says like, genocide is inevitable um that this is just the nature of of the kind of birthright of white settlers is to be able to say that like these individuals this like entire civilization of people are subhuman and their death is just a natural fact of life there just just speaks to the sheer depth of the evil that we're speaking to here i think that's what sakai does a really good job of throughout the course of this text but especially in this chapter when he starts talking about the white labor movement is just like the insidious nature of proclaiming that you care about you know workers of the world unite and uh greater self-determination for people but he shows that that stripped of a analysis of, of race of colonization and he, i think he's building off here like harry haywood's black belt thesis that there is this kind of internal colony of colonized people within the confines of the united states and that the weight the white labor movement does an extremely good job of ensuring that these classes of people remain functionally as second-class citizens for quite some time. And he also speaks to something that I think is, a, is incredibly interesting and I think is going to maybe factor into how I look at organizing spaces. And um, he speaks to the nature of why white workers in the labor movement drift towards uh, liberalism, even as they are organizing under the guise of a radical politics. He, uh, Sakai mentions that the dominant political slogan of the white workers movement of the 1840s was to vote yourself a farm, which, you know, sounds extremely contrary to the idea of, uh, you know, seizing the means of production, um, you know, obtaining a dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, the kind of traditional ideas of what is necessary in order to enact a true labor movement in a country, uh, because the settlers have found that through their labor movement, they only need to be able to change 
empire to give themselves access to things like a right to have cheap land to farm. And that the ideal lifestyle that they want is very much not far away at all, so long as they're able to find the right representatives in power, like Andrew Jackson, who's able to kill entire civilizations of individuals in mass, justify it, and then, you know, now there's this spacious land to settle. To speak to you know, kind of your earlier point about the brutality of it, Sakai brings up Jackson being personally involved in genocide. There's a side note, a footnote here, talking about how Hitler's death camp officers uh, were said to have made lampshades out of the skins of murdered Jews. Uh, but the Jackson, Jackson and his frontier comrades were much more practical. Uh, they made bridal reins. And I've read elsewhere things like shoelaces out of the skins of their victims. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just absolutely brutal. And and to your other point about vote yourself a farm, like, you know, and, and Sakai brings up this point that, you know, America didn't have a feudal past. When, when they're talking about vote yourself a farm, they're not saying, oh, I want a piece of the land that we've all lived on for the last, you know, thousand years. It's, I want a piece of that guy's land over there, you know, where people are still living. Uh, where there are whole nations, you know, existing. Uh, and that's what vote yourself a farm means for, for these Americans. It's not about, you know, building a common struggle and taking back a portion of, you know, the land that you and your family have worked for, you know, generations. It's, it's band together with the hyper wealthy planters and go steal more land that can then be divided among you guys. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's just very heinous stuff to think about. And then in the section that's in this chapter as well, the popular appeal of genocide, I think Sakai just does a really great job of talking about why the white proletariat saw themselves as inherently antagonizing against the plight of Africans and Native Americans, that apartheid, which as we understand it, is like second-class citizenship that you also see in other settler colonies, like how he later talks about South Africa and then, of course, we see with the kind of settler uh, colonization of Palestine um, is also often coupled with things like mass terror, that uh, even abolitionists in the north who considered the kind of plight of uh, Africans to be worthy of attention still, you know, required that deportation of these people um, was better than the alternative, which is genocide, which is to say that there's still two evil things that that are posed against each other. And it's just really like the, the scale of what we're talking about here in terms of genocide is just incredibly heinous. The more <laughs> Sakai talks about it, it, it just really shows that the foundation of this country was, was rotten to the core. And how lazy too. This chapter uh, describes what, what he calls petty, uh, petty annexationism. Uh, and this is where instead of, you know, working together or working hard and building yourself a better life, uh, working, you know, inventing new products or, or building new industries. Instead, you can just go and take entire industries from other nations. He talks about extensively something that I had never heard about before, before reading this book, about how the West Coast had been settled uh, by Chinese laborers, uh, brought over at first by the British. The first, uh, he talks about the first settlements on the West Coast and Vancouver Island were entirely built by Chinese labor. Uh, and how the West Coast was heavily populated by uh, Chinese, uh, among other Asians. And how, for example, like San Francisco Bay was just full of junks. 
you know, fit, there were fishing villages all across the West Coast that were just all Chinese. But when you had this massive influx of immigrants, you know, that were fleeing really horrible conditions in Europe uh, around this time, uh, the British were committing genocide in Ireland, right? Uh, and had driven off or killed one quarter of the population of the island of Ireland. And when they got here, uh, starving and poor, they needed to have jobs. Uh, and instead of you know building new factories, uh, building new industries uh, to employ these laborers, instead America just went to the West Coast and kicked out all the Chinese, uh, removed them systematically from uh, from industries, had massive lynch mobs, uh, just killing people left and right. Uh, and then you had all these jobs that were now free uh, that you could uh, then hire uh, all these Irish laborers. And it's really disappointing that so many of these people who had been oppressed by imperial powers back in Europe, you know, just jumped right in to this. Sakai talks about, you know, a letter that was written by uh, Irishmen back in Ireland to their comrades here in America, begging them not to be racist. Uh, that was signed by like 50,000 or more people. And the Irish Americans here answered resoundingly, no, we can get, and this is, you know, a big part of Sakai's point is that using our racist politics, we can get a better life for ourselves. Uh, he uses, uh, I think, a quote from Lenin to describe this, that racism was a class alliance with the big bourgeoisie. Yeah, that was really interesting to read about, like how basically, like it makes me think about that idea of like, quote unquote, immigrants are stealing jobs. You know, that's really a, that really refers to like people of color and um, immigrants stealing like white jobs. But it's really the other way around where like historically it was the white immigrants stealing the jobs created by workers of the oppressed nations, like these Chinese and Mexican workers um, on the West Coast. Even today, I mean, think of like Huawei or uh, TikTok. I mean, this is still like the modus operandi uh, of uh, American business. Yeah, it's really funny that I'm actually reading uh, Settlers right now while watching um, the show Warrior. I don't know if you all have heard about it, but it's the Cinemax show that's on HBO Max now that's depicting a script that was written by Bruce Lee about a Chinese uh, immigrant who comes here right before the turn of the Chinese Exclusion Act and is like fighting in the Tong Wars. And the show actually does a surprisingly good depiction of the kind of tensions that existed specifically between the Chinese community in San Francisco with the Irish labor unions. And you see like this kind of proletarian identity exists amongst the the Irish. Like they do programs that look like mutual aid programs, like they're ensuring that those who are unemployed are supported by others who are paying dues to make sure that everyone has you know, they're, you know, putting their table. And then the show also does a pretty good job of depicting what Sakai notes is like a very strong relationship between the labor aristocracy and, you know, the state, because like the policemen in the show are like best friends with all of these like Irish uh, uh, labor unions. And I think the show also depicts like the San Francisco right of 1877, um, where, you know, uh, white settlers basically pillage Chinatown and just burn everything in sight. Um, kind of just reflecting what Sakai's noting is like the sheer severity of of the relationships that you saw with uh, the Irish through their assimilation into whiteness and kind of displacing that previous long-standing tradition of um, republicanism, where they you know were part of a people who were known to resist against imperialism, against colonization, 
and in turn see that their class interest makes it more convenient for them to join this anti-coolie movement and discharge Chinese out of these communities to result things it results in things like the Rock Springs Massacre, where it's just open season upon these colored people because you now have the class ascension status of being white in America. Uh, I'm going to read this quote. Uh, it's talking about uh, the slave aristocracy in California. Uh, Dennis Kearney, uh, Sakai is deriding the CPUSA. Uh, he says, even revisionist CPUSA historians apparently feel no shame in praising this gang of degenerates for, quote, arousing public support for a number of important labor demands, forcing old established parties to listen more attentively to the demands of the common people. I mean, how many people do you see online on the, on the supposed left in this country who are, you know, praising this gang of degenerates that just, uh, you know, have this protest in the Capitol for arousing public support for a number of important labor demands and forcing old established parties to listen more attentively to the demands of the common people. I mean, it's, it's so wild how, how contemporary a lot of this knowledge is, even though it's, you know, describing events that happened almost 200 years ago. Yeah. I think the argument that Sakai is making, that's like increasingly clear is that this kind of settler attitude has not changed very much. And that specifically prescribes how uh, white America continues to, make its decisions. And I think this is even better explained when he talks about the test of black reconstruction and how um, the white settlers kind of negotiated this idea of slave power after the civil war is over. They recognized that, you know, slaves during the civil war joined the North and then were able to just sheer virtue of their uh, demographic, you know, size were able to easily kill like their slave masters at a whim during the war, organize in ways to identify specifically like, oh, this slave master specifically wronged you. We're going to go find him and we're going to kill him during the war. And so they saw and recognized the large scale organizing capacity that uh, Africans in America had now that the war was over and they needed to ensure that this, this kind of new internal colony was repressed. And the strategy that he, uh, that Sakai identifies that the United States enacted during Black Reconstruction is really interesting because he classifies it as neocolonialism um, in combination with just repression of the most uh, militant communities, right? Because he's kind of applying this analysis that Kwame Nkrumah has put forth through neocolonialism, the high stage of imperialism, where he shows that part of being able to control a people, or in this case, an internal colony, is to create a petite bourgeoisie amongst that colonized people, to make it so that that class of people function for you and channel all of the kind of revolutionary energy into things like politics, uh, through like elections, um, through like representation at the table and stuff like that. And that's something that we definitely see today, even in, you know, the Asian American community where we see the kind of, uh, lack of class analysis, lack of like organizing capacity, because all of the energy is taken up by people who insist that the important things to care about are you know, representational politics, uh, like who gets casted in uh, the next edition of Crazy Rich Asians or whatever the fuck, um, like which elections we should be vying for. And we see that this is like a like tried and true strategy of uh, the settler colonial empire is to A, repress all of the most militant elements, which is why we don't see like people like Yuri Kochiyama in our communities anymore. And then B, we see this class strata of petite bourgeoisie who are able to control what our kind of political messaging is. 
I just think of like, you know, the groups in uh, Venezuela that had the protests against uh, Maduro's government and then were supported by the U.S. Uh, or uh, this guy, uh, uh, Khalifa Haftar, uh, who is a warlord in Libya uh, now. And this dude, uh, uh, my friend uh, who goes by the, the nom de guerre, Free Palestine, uh, on our mm-hmm. podcast, West Bank Robbery, uh, talks about this guy a lot uh, who lived near him uh, over in Northern Virginia. And they keep a lot of a lot of these guys uh, around in Northern Virginia to whenever they need to, whenever they overthrow a country, install this new kind of upper class that is ready and willing there to serve their interests. I mean, you saw this again at the, the protests at the Capitol. I mean, there were uh, South Vietnamese flags. Uh, <laughs> Which is, I saw a great, this is a great meme that my friend Free Palestine keeps sending around and it's a uh, Southern pride worldwide. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's the South Vietnamese flag and the Confederate flag, which you saw flying side by side uh, right. at this protest just recently. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild. The, the mindset that, that goes into that neocolonial leadership, because you are, I mean, you're saying, you know, here, come eat my people, but you know, as long as you give me a little, you know, a little slice too, like it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. And to finish this chapter out, I think Sakai does a really good job of showing that even with something like reconstruction, having the capacity to raise the quality of life of everyone who existed in the South, uh, poor whites still oppose reconstruction, even if it personally uplifted their, uh, you know, standard of living through things like social reforms. It's just like, this is just further proof then that there is this labor aristocracy. Um, Sakai has a really good quote here where he said, uh, no sooner had the planter confederacy been struck down than poor whites began responding to the appeals of the KKK and the other planter guerrilla organizations. This was a mass phenomenon. Their motivation was obvious. They desired to keep Africans as colonial subjects below even wage labor. So the kind of capacity of these whites to sustain their class status was to make sure that Re- the goals of reconstruction, even if it were to improve their own personal well-being, uh, was eliminated as a policy. And so you see that there is a kind of deadening of the capacity of white labor to be able to improve anyone's um, quality of living. And Sakai expands this through the conversation regarding the eight-hour campaign in the United States. And then just to finish this chapter off... Um, it's really funny that he's talking about organizations like the AFL-CIO because I think it, he actually kind of gives us a signpost as to why organizations like white labor unions drift towards bourgeois politics as we see them now. Like labor unions in America uh, currently basically just function as uh, arms of the Democratic Party. Someone I know was uh, working or interning with the AFL-CIO and kind of the extent of what they did in terms of radical politics was just making sure that people uh, showed up to vote and um, doing phone banking to make sure that people were filling out the census. But, you know, the function of labor unions is supposed to be much more radical than that, you would think. But uh, Sakai does a really good job of illustrating why the composition of a labor union being primarily white lends itself to things like bourgeois politics because their status as labor aristocracy ensures that their quality of life is always, you know, slightly better than the quote unquote more downtrodden. And in chapter five, like Sakai goes into what exactly the role of labor aristocracy plays in like sabotaging revolutions. There's a section, the the bourgeois proletariat. Um, This idea by Engels, 
who wrote that, um, wrote about, um, he divided workers into two groups, the privileged minority of the labor aristocracy and the great mass of common wage labor. And the labor aristocracy is basically like this, the upper, the privileged layer of workers who are quote, no longer exploited. And the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie shares with them a layer of the super profits from colonialism. And um, Engels called this alliance between the labor aristocracy and the bourgeoisie bribery. And yeah, and then there's this Sakai writes about, you know, how Lenin wrote about this, um, analyzing the situation in Europe, how the labor aristocracy just played this role in sabotaging, you know, they, they were the leaders of trade unions and socialist party in Germany. And they played this role in just sabotaging those movements. So one of the takeaways here was that settler colonialism and imperialism creates the wealth that's used to buy the loyalty of the labor aristocracy. That class is generally understood to be pro-imperialist because that's where they, they're getting all of their wealth. That's a lot of chapter five. Sakai goes into a bunch of like key lessons, and one of them is that Lenin insisted on breaking with quote-unquote socialists who don't support anti-colonial movements. And Sakai says that focusing on white workers' racism is a shallow argument, meaning that it's not racism that's the problem, it's the class alliance underlying the racism. And along with, you know, the labor aristocracy is the social base of imperialism, and so along with the army and police, like, they have to be fought. So the army and police are like the military branches of imperialism. So he's just making this argument that to fight against imperialism, you also have to, you know, fight against the labor aristocracy. He also makes an argument for like the communist movement has to go internationalist to organize the quote unquote real masses of capitalism and imperialism in Asia, Latin America and Africa. And this was like the same idea that Malcolm X had. Because the labor aristocracy isn't the actual proletariat. They're, you know, part of the oppressor class. And historically in the United States, this was um, the white settlers. So yeah, he just goes really, really deep into this about how the pro-imperialist labor aristocracy of white settlers, um, they dominated the trade unions and socialist organizations. And they sabotaged militant outbreaks among workers and prevented any unity between white workers and the colonial proletariat. This is like a really dense section that I highly recommend reading because it's it's just super interesting and super like it's really true. Yeah, I completely agree. I've always been trying to find a text to kind of take Lenin's analysis of imperialism further. Um, for me, that kind of the logical follow up to Lenin's imperialism is neocolonialism. And then I feel like Sakai is trying to expand that understanding of neocolonialism. Um, and imperialism to try to understand in the relationship of what we need to do and what is currently being done in America in the imperial core. I think this section just does a really good job of illustrating uh, his main point, which is that it's like his argument's not race essentialism. He's not condemning all white people to be incapable of uh, organizing a mass movement that will allow us to seek liberation. He's defining that there is a specific class interest that makes it so that these uh, white labor aristocrats are incapable of being the base from which we build this movement. And I think that's a pretty compelling argument, uh, considering how this manifests in organizing spaces, even today, even in like mutual aid organizations where you see like white people taking up too much space, or they kind of drift the organization away from, you know, more radical demands, uh, almost inevitably. 
uh, if they are in the helm of leadership. And I think Sakai shows that there's historical precedent for why that seems to be the case in the left now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people argue that this book is race essentialist. Uh, but I think he gives, he goes out of his way to give a lot of examples uh, where, you know, there were various groups of white people or, you know, in some cases, like not yet white, like European immigrants that chose right, that, you know, that chose solidarity. I think the great example of the Patricio Corps, uh, which is the St. Patrick's Battalion, uh, they were a battalion in the U.S. Army that broke with the U.S. during the Mexican-American War. They saw that what was being done to Mexico was, you know, the same or very similar to what, uh, you know, Britain was doing to their home, Ireland. Uh, and so they turned around and, and fought against the U.S. Empire. And the result of this was the vast majority of them were killed in battle and the remaining members uh, were then killed in the largest mass execution in, in U.S. history. Uh, I believe there were uh, 50 people uh, that were hung in, in, in two, over two days uh, or rather in, in two different uh, locations uh, for this act of solidarity. And it shows kind of the real, where does the real threat lie? within white society, it doesn't lie within these trade unions. It lies within, you know, anti-imperialist and anti-American organizations, uh, you know, groups that break with, you know, Sakai says, if you're white and you're like, well, you know, I don't want to be, you know, part of the empire. Well, you got to fight against it, you know, in, in, in a very material, you know, in a material way. Uh, and that's how, you know, and Sakai sees that as, you know, a possibility for people. He just sees that the portion of people that are going to choose to do that is in the minority. And, and people in America need to understand that the portion of people in this country who are hyper exploited may not be the majority uh, and are definitely not the majority of white people. Uh, and that's kind of, I think, a really hard thing to come to grips with uh, uh, for a lot of American leftists. Uh, who, you know, we always hear about, you know, we're the majority, 99%, 1%, and all that, but it, it, our society is not divided in that way. Yeah, and it's interesting because the main criticism you can levy against most of those kind of leftists is that they're too stuck on this notion of like domestic policy, which is how you get like so uh, democratic socialists who are basically just, you know, a larger, larger social safety net combined with Medicare for all. Like that's their principle kind of platform um and then you can say that like you know they're not anti-imperialist and that's the kind of lacking facet of what would complete their analysis but sakai does a really good job of showing that even being anti-imperialist is not a sufficient condition for someone to be in the same kind of cadre that we would need in order to enact a movement for self-determination because he illustrates these examples of where the united states you know can support movements for national liberation in places like the Philippines. Um, at one point, uh, he references, and I know this from personal experience as well, is that uh, the United States was strongly allied with uh, the Vic Minh in order to support their fight for self-determination for uh, some time shortly uh, after 1945. So just supporting or rather opposing imperialism and supporting the national liberation movement of a country is not sufficient if the interests of the white labor aristocracy is still to be able to extract the capital that comes out of those countries, even upon 
uh, liberation, which is how you create something like neocolonialism, and which is why the white, white labor aristocracy is a labor aristocracy because their wages are always offset by the kind of resource extraction that comes from these countries, um, even after they have achieved some notion of liberation. The section on, you know, the settler anti-imperialism was was pretty fascinating to me. Uh, you know, it's not something that, you know, I had really heard about before. I had heard of like nativist movements, but the idea that, you know, I think part of it, you know, is is directly related to what we were talking about before about not wanting to be the minority. I mean, one of the biggest oppositions to American conquest in Asia was the idea that we were going to bring in all these Asians to America and that they were going to, you know, be, they were going to be more than the white people. And, you know, that was the greatest opposition to Filipino statehood uh, when it was conquered was that, you know, who wants to have, you know, in white America, they don't want to have, you know, all these Filipinos partaking in, in the same. And so I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, I found that really interesting too, because I've it's not really intuitive at all that there would be like this large group of like historically, like Sakai talks about this. There was a large settler anti-imperialist movement called the American Anti-Imperialist League, and they were like very um, they imposed opposed imperialism, specifically invasion of the Philippines, because they saw it as like the increased power of monopoly monopoly capital and so they were basically representing petty bourgeois interests and they didn't want to compete with the monopoly capitalists who can afford to exploit colonial labor and you know one of their arguments was basically like the old conquests are are good but the new ones are bad because the tropics are too far away and the climate isn't suited for white people and it'll just bring hordes of brown people here like that was one of their weird ass arguments yeah this is super interesting section it's just super interesting how they were against imperialism, but still white supremacists and capitalists. So yeah, like even anti-imperialism isn't enough if it's motivated by these like petty bourgeois interests. The genocide too uh, committed there uh, in the Philippines was very surprising to me. I had learned about like the Spanish-American War uh, and the conquest of the Philippines. Uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't heard things like this, like Jacob Smith ordering his troops to shoot every Filipino man, woman, or child they could find over the age of 10, which U.S. imperialists admit happened. Uh, their excuse is that they say that, you know, the order was rescinded. Uh, but I mean, this is a U.S. general who's ordering them to kill every person over the age of 10. The brutality is, I mean, he hits over the head with this over and over again. The brutality is beyond belief. Yeah, it becomes pretty clear through the text of this book that the violence that's enacted by white settler society in America and then abroad is not the exception, it's the rule. And that makes it very clear through things like the the American War in Vietnam, where you see that kind of violence playing out in terms of orchestration of warfare, even if it's not for a, a kind of obvious class interests. Uh, just kind of the desecration of a of, of a of a native peoples is just kind of inherent to the foreign policy of the United States, um, and that's something that we have to kind of contend with in a liberatory movement. He continually lays out the U.S. strategy of population regroupment and destruction of the social base of society, uh, which 
is used, you know, over and over again uh, in the conquest uh, of the Philippines. You know, they they talk about you know moving people into concentration camps, moving people off of their land. Uh, then he also talks about uh, the Great Migration uh, to the north and how this was a you know campaign of terror and population recruitment. Uh, you know, even earlier than that. The conquest of indigenous land also, you know, they use campaigns of population recruitment. Again, we're going to, you know, the, for example, most famously the Trail of Tears, right? We're going to move you off of your homeland and then you'll be displaced, you'll be disconnected, uh, and which, which incredibly weakens uh, social movements. And I think, you know, this is another thing that Sakai hammers home is how important land is uh, to, you know, it's the it's the it's the name of the first section of the first chapter that you know the land is the basis of nationhood, and how important it is to have that you know connection to the land, you know how important it is for these white settlers, but also how important it is for you know colonized people to secure the land of their nation uh, against you know the imperialist powers, uh, and and how the imperialist powers are always looking to disconnect people from the land, which is the source of their power. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think like the notion that power comes from land is echoed through folks like Marcus Garvey and Pan-Africanists who know that, the you know, kind of along the same lines as the settlers, but on kind of an inverted way is that to be able to achieve some notion of self-determination is to be able to have land and to def- be able to defend that land, which is the same reason why Sakai outlines earlier that reconstruction, uh, the first phase of reconstruction is to directly target um Africans in America who were able to defend the land with arms because they knew that revolutionary violence was key to be able to secure the land that they had. Um, and any liberatory movement knows that the combination of having land and then having the revolutionary violence to be able to defend that land is necessary uh, in order to you know, defeat empire, especially if you're living within the imperial core. And then I think chapter five actually ends with a really interesting piece about the relationship between U.S. and South African settlerism. And here we see a direct relationship between domestic policy and foreign policy, where we see that um, there is this very strong lineage of the exportation of American workers, uh, specifically mercenaries, engineers, technologies, um, to the European exploitation of South Africa, which is something that Kwame Nkrumah talks about extensively during uh the text of neocolonialism. Um, Sakai here shows that this is uh, a very strong model, right? That the model of settler colonialism is something that was also therefore exported by these very experienced Euro-Americans to South Africa, which is why you see things like apartheid uh, being enacted there. And this is also echoed um, by um, some comrades I have in, in organizations like the Palestinian Youth Movement, Students for Justice uh, for Palestine, uh, fighting for Palestinian self-determination, supporting movements like the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement to show that settler colonialism is something that was enacted upon a native Palestinian lands by the treaties drawn up by the British to allow for the formation of Israel. Um, that settler colonialism is a useful framework because it allows us to understand to truly understand that this is something that settlers use and then export to other places to be able to control and refine that violence in order to subjugate a native peoples. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, something my friend, uh, Free Palestine, always 
tries to recontextualize is he says, uh, you know, you take this struggle and, and put it in the context of Palestine. Uh, and then, you know, does your, do your politics still make sense? Right. Are we going, are we looking to organize the revolutionary potential of Israeli settlers? Uh, is that really where we're looking to, you know, find the, the, the revolutionary mass of, of Palestine? It's, it's the idea of that is completely absurd. Uh, and, and Sakai, you know, belies this. He, he quotes uh, this movement, the communists in South Africa, the Red Guards who took over and during the Rand Revolt in 1922, who had slogans that read, workers of the world unite for a white South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah like i mean it's 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 just <laughs> absurd uh uh on on the complete face of it yeah one of my takeaways from like chapter five is that imperialism will always compromise working class politics and it, well it's always going to comp- compromise working class politics in imperialist countries in order to have like a social revolution, like Zakai really like makes an argument for understanding these class contradictions within the bourgeoisie, like between the bourgeoisie and the petit bourgeoisie. There's this interesting quote here. Basically, it says that we can't become confused about, you know, the basic nature of this class. And um, he says, if like the Vietnamese comrades, we can make these contradictions serve us, we will have seized an essential element of revolution. And so the question that gives me is like, how can we make make these contradictions serve us like that's something i'm wondering about now like he doesn't really go deeper into that but i thought that was an interesting thing to think about yeah that's a really great point for the you know later chapters to get people reading uh, he definitely goes into this the last chapter uh, is called tactical and strategic Uh, and he goes into uh you know how how these you know uh, fissures within settler society can can be used, and he uses examples from his own organizing uh, in the eighties, uh, and also how these you know how these fissures and and alliances within settler society can stem that organizing as well. Uh, he this is one thing that I do think is a is a, 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 a is a decent criticism of the book is that he doesn't offer I feel as many positive solutions at least in the early portions. I think that, you know, he is working within a larger, uh, uh, Q brings up uh, a number of times, uh, neocolonialism. Uh, and I think that, you know, like he's working in this broader milieu uh, of politics. I think that, you know, he's where he wants that. He wants there to be a social revolution. But uh, I think that he sees part of it is that it needs to come from outside this Euro-American society to, to crush it. And part of that is using, like we said, uh, you know, the Anti-Imperialist League, he brought up how Vietnamese liberation movements also have used Americans and their class, you know, class conflicts to their own ends. And lots of people try this around the world. Uh, a big criticism of, you know, the Kurdish liberation movement in northern Syria is that, uh, you know, they were very reliant uh, upon U.S. help and now, you know, have become in many ways neocolonial uh, agents. And so there's, you know, dangers for this all around. Yeah, I think both feel raised really interesting points about kind of the limitation of this book is that it doesn't describe how uh, people like us who live within the imperial core 
ought to act in order to sharpen these contradictions between the petite bourgeoisie and the capital B bourgeoisie. It's like unclear based on what we've read so far what um, our goal is. And it also comes off almost as like a little bit defeatist. Like what, um, how do we resolve uh, the contradiction between those two classes while also contending with this labor aristocracy and organizing and outflanking them in a way that is able to, you know, prevent the imperial core from being able to expand or to cause more harm to the rest of the world. It's like unclear what the responsibility of organizers in um, the confines of the empire are supposed to do based on the historical analysis that we've been presented. But I think so far the book has given um, at least me a lot to think about um, in terms of trying to understand the relationship between power um like groups that have power in the United States today. Like I think we've talked a lot about how there's a lot of this analysis that can be applied directly to current events, to the relationship between the petite bourgeoisie at the Capitol and their riots and, you know, the capital B bourgeoisie that are going to try to concentrate and centralize their power to prevent things like this from ever happening again and ultimately make organizing much more difficult. For example, Biden kind of putting out that, uh, proposed bill to prevent the um uh, what is it like classification of domestic terrorists like he was using that to uh kind of centralize powers uh within the federal government to be able to prevent things like this from happening um by using this example of the petite bourgeoisie riot um that didn't present a real serious threat um to the powers that be so i think um sakai is just really giving us a lot of tools to work with i think the responsibility of us and readers and uh, potential revolutionaries is to try to take that analysis to understand what the next step is. Yeah, Sakai does do a pretty good job of at least drawing those connections. Like you said, it's like a, like he's just giving us tools and things to think about. But so it just makes me think that it's, it's obviously he makes very clear um, arguments for why it's not enough to be anti-racist. You also have to be against settler colonialism and imperialism and slavery. And he makes a good case for how all of these things are connected to build up. Basically, these were the building blocks of the U.S. empire. So I think <laughs> thinking of it in that way, it's like you can start seeing these connections a little more clearly. He goes into a lot of examples. So I would recommend reading the book to really like get into all of his examples. Um, but yeah, he does a good job just laying out what was actually required and how all of these different things funded each other and how they allowed for each all of these other building blocks to expand, basically. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's this book is not prescriptive. It's not necessarily, I mean, it is kind of telling you a little bit what to do, but it's mainly like just a history book. Uh, and I think it's incredibly useful in that. I mean, Sakai says, you know, uh, to help us, we need to not become confused. Uh, we need to understand American society. And you can't understand that by only reading like American history books, American propaganda books to understand what happened at the Capitol. I think you, you know, you need to read this book. You need to read settlers. It's incredibly uh, comprehensive. Uh, I echo what uh, the other two hosts were saying. It's, I mean, there's just so much here. Uh, we talked about a lot. Uh, so far, but we haven't even scratched the surface uh, of what's in here because uh, uh, it's so, like I said, it's so comprehensive. Uh, I always return to this book. Um, there are always, uh, you know, pieces 
in here that I can, you know, use to help understand kind of the politics of, you know, why, why people are doing the things they're doing, uh, why socialist movements, uh, you know, are failing in this country. And, you know, why all those articles about like the white working class are just like complete like bullshit uh, and don't make any sense. Uh, and are talking about people who are like literally small business tyrants and not working class. It doesn't make any sense. But yeah, this book will explain to you why, you know, we have that view uh, in America and, and how this nation is formed. Uh, so I find it, I find it incredibly, incredibly useful. And I'm hoping that we get to delve into more of this kind of psychology of uh, the white mythos moving forward. But we've only even got to chapter five, so there's still quite a bit left uh, for us to kind of chew our teeth on. So I'm very excited. So I think that's a pretty good place to leave off. Um, thanks for having this conversation with us, y'all. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. And have a great night, everyone. <laughs>